reflections on the um, Arab uprisings, and I'll end with that as well, just to give you a sense of where my thinking is now. So in the last five years, we've seen multiple renditions of the Arab world and the Middle East rise and fall. As you all know, in December 2010, Tunisians began taking to the streets courageously to demand the fall of an authoritarian and corrupt regime. They were risking life and limb as they called for freedom, dignity, and social justice. And really in a matter of weeks, months, and years, they inspired millions of Arab people from the far east of Morocco, from the far west of Morocco to the far east of Qatif in Saudi Arabia. And the revolution was really important because it changed all of these revolutions were very important because they changed practices and theories. And for most of us, what it really was, the experience was a very particular kind of high um, because we experienced an unknown territory of hope, when, and which was an emotion that was very new to many of us, myself included. Unfortunately, this hope sort of quickly eroded into a very um, brutal civil war in Syria, as well as a new rise of millenarian kind of Islamism that makes Al-Qaeda blush. In places like Egypt, we began to see the rise of a new regime sort of dressed in old military attire. And here I'll just show you some of these, um, so, so these are the images of hope that I found that continue to be very important to me personally and that help me think, think through what I've called in many places the roller coaster of hope and despair that many of us experience during the uprisings. I speak of these experiences as someone who was, ex you know, had the great gift of living them in Cairo um, for, for between 2009 until 2014. So here I'm just going to show you some maps that are various territorial, territorial renditions of the Middle East. So this is just a regular map. This is an ISIS map. And this is a, an onion map um, that I thought was funny and somewhat entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, so what I wanted to, what was really striking for me in these um, moments of Arab uprisings was the way that activists and thinkers called on the idea of Nahda or awakening. And now this is, a, a, this is an old um, archive, right? It doesn't begin in the 21st century. It actually begins in the 19th century. And what I'm going to be talking about today is this project, the, the Nahda, which I'll shorthand as the Arab Liberal Project. And usually scholars have rendered this project as primarily literary or cultural. Um, but it, in fact, it's a very diverse archive of thought and experience that has included um, any, everything um, from Islamic modernists to anarchists to socialist thinkers. Today I'm arguing that the Nahda is also deeply rooted in the principles of financial investment, capital accumulation, and private property. And I do this for five reasons. One is to link the Nahda to regional visions. So my idea here is that the way that people have thought about the Nahda is really linked to how have they thought of this region, the Middle East or the Arab world. Two, the reason I'm invested in this is because it's a way for me to urge that we really need an economic history of the Arab world and the Middle East. Three, um, m m one of my main kind of political imperatives in doing this project is to argue that despite the many nostalgic eulogies of Arab liberalism, actually the project is alive and kicking. And four, the importance in recognizing that this is a very alive and kicking project um, is linked to the urgency of critiquing the deep exclusions that have constituted and continue to constitute it until this day. And five, I really want to point out how in the 21st century, just as it was in the 19th, wakefulness, which is what Nahda means, Nahda means to awaken, right? Um, wakefulness is a flawed metaphor. It assumes that everyone is asleep, 
It assumes an already existing essence waiting to arise. It assumes humanity's path is linear and ultimately leads to improvement or progress, right? And the students of history among us know much better. So to tell you this story, oh, this is an image of the military above us all from Egypt. So to tell you this story, I'm going to go to another map, and this one will be familiar to you. It's now the source of multiple controversies, whether on um, national television um, broadcasting networks or in textbooks. And this is the map of the incredibly shrinking Palestine. Today's story begins before this shrinking takes place in the 1930s and 40s, and it's based on my um, book that recently came out three months ago called Men of Capital, Scarcity and Economy in Mandate Palestine. So the book is really looking at two decades, the 1930s and 1940s. Um, the mandate in Palestine begins just after World War I and lasts until 1948. Typically, the reason, that the, the reason that the British colonial mandate in Palestine is thought of as exceptional is because of its ostensibly um, conflicting promises to two nationalist movements. I take exception to this analysis. I don't think that you can equate a settlement enterprise with uh, uh, the, the Palestinian nationalist movement. I think this is a, a, a false parallel because it equates the occupied with the occupier. Um, and we can talk more about that um, later. But the thing that is very exceptional about the British mandate and British mandatory rule is that it is the only actually um, official rec recognition of settler colonialism that the Mandates Commission commits to. And this is a really important um, framework through which to understand the story of these men of capital and any story of British-ruled Palestine. So over the last several decades, scholars have really highlighted this period as a time of literary and cultural production as well as social change. So basically you have an active women's movement, you have a very important labor movement, you have populist politics, right? But despite these contributions, Palestinians who were concerned with capital accumulation investment, economic growth are erased altogether from the historical record. And this erasure has a corollary in Zionist modernization narratives, which has posited two hermetically sealed, self-enclosed economies, a pre-modern Arab economy embodied here with the camels, as opposed to a modern industrial Jewish economy embodied here in the electricity factory. And scholars have gone really far at chipping away at the dual society um, paradigm that is at the premise of this narrative. But what has been interesting is that Palestinian elites themselves, and this is the case not just in Zionist historiography, historiography but also Palestinian historiography, um, that is Palestinian nationalist historiography, or um, historiography that is also sympathetic to the Palestinians, the, the elites continue to appear as a unified whole. Um, there is not a distinction between various different kinds of elites, right? We are told to time and again that the landscape of social life in Palestine before 1948 is one that is easy to understand, um, that there are the so-called um, quote-unquote aristocracy, which is a term that I take issue with, but the, the, the notable, the big notable families in Jerusalem, the Husseinis and the Neshashibis, who are always decadent and infighting um, and cannot unify. And then in the face of these, uh, uh, of these notables, you have a large mass of peasants who are honorable but ignorant, and you have a small group of workers. Um, but this to me is a really um, dangerous flattening of the Palestinian social landscape. When I say this, I'm saying it, um, that basically what I'm saying is that what we need to do is disaggregate the lump of elites as we understand them. And that's not to say that there isn't a big 
disparity among Palestinians in the mandate period. Certainly the disparity between urban elites and Palestinians living in villages um, and in rural locations is very wide. More certain still, the, Zionists, um, the Zionist enterprise was richer and far more equipped than any other Palestinian industrial in initiative. And here, just to give you a sense of that, European Jews are basically um, uh, producing 50% of Palestine's output in the 1920s, and that's a number that goes to 80, up to 80% in the 1940s because of wartime-induced industrialization. But the corollary to this kind of growth is not Palestinian economic stagnancy, it's another story altogether. Okay, so basically the question is here, the argument is here is that there is a historically constituted commercial class in Palestine. And that historically constituted class begins um, in the Ottoman period. We have not taken it seriously, we have not engaged it for its very contemporary legacies that we live with today. And so I just want to give you a sense of some of these numbers. Malish um, Jude, um, it's going to be a bit boring, especially this next paragraph, but bear with us. Um, so in the late Ottoman period, what is going on is the um, consolidation of a, nas a nascent commercial class, right? And that nascent commercial class is already be becoming separate from the landed elite, okay? Um, and this is really beginning to gain ground in Palestine. And there's all sorts of new opportunities that are arising in banks and trade bureaus and shipping companies and commercial agencies. And these groups of people are basically um, taking part in something broader and adding to a broader network of social change of people who are shop owners, distributors, retailers. There's a lot of different re, um, relationships to how, to how people make money in this period, right? How they make money is changing, how they're creating networks around making money is changing in very interesting ways. So by World War I, you already have a diverse range of local industries, and these include flour milling, soap making, textiles, metal shop, metal shops. Between 1918 and 1927, um, Palestinians and European Jews are establishing about over 2,000 commercial and manufacturing enterprises. Palestinians are, uh, own 60% of these, okay? So here you get to see a sense of some of the quick establishment of a lot of these initiatives and how they're changing in the interwar period. The real flourishing comes during World War II and that happens because basically the British are turning Palestine into a military base so they are bringing in a great deal of capital into um, the, the, the um, various different enterprises, right? And there's a, that's a really important story. But for now, what I'll be telling you about is how during this period, Arab industrial establishments and their workforce more than doubles during the period of World War II. And Palestinians are holding considerable cash in the two Arab banks in this period, which grow faster in the 1940s than any other financial institution in Palestine at the time, including all of the European Jewish financial institutions. So between 1939 and 1946, total capital in the Arab Bank and the, Ash and the Arab National Bank actually grows by 14-fold, okay? So clearly there is a Palestinian capitalist story to tell. Um, and telling it really requires us to step back um, and do two methodological things. One is to step back from this faulty comparison between the Palestinians and the European Jews. I don't think that this is a comparison that we can make if you want to be rigorous about who you're comparing in the British Mandate period, you would have to compare um, the European Jewish enterprise, the Yishuv, to the British colonial um, government in Palestine. So to see this story, you have to step away from that epistemological paradox where the Palestinian can only appear as the shadow of the Jewish settler, okay? So that's one thing. The other thing that we have to do, which has become more difficult, and this is 
One of the, the difficulties around this is the easy way in which, and this is because of a number of different um, histories and historiographies, in which it has become easier for us to really think of the elites as one um, lump. Okay, but we have to disaggregate that lump. We have to try and understand how social change and relation to capital actually affected what kind of elites were shaping social knowledge and power relations in this period. So I'm going to tell you two, this is a two-part story. First I'm going to tell you about um, some of the men of capital that I studied and, 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 and also some of um, the women. And then I'm going to tell you a bit about um, British colonial rule and how it influenced um, some of these uh, procedures. What the book is most concerned with and the way that it is um, positioning it, the intervention is, is that it is thinking about how is it that this object, the economy, becomes a site of social management. How is the imperative to calculate bodies, their production and their consumption, a key way in which both Palestinian elites as well as British colonial officials are really attempting to find new modes of governance as well as envisioning the future. Okay, So one of the junctures then that I'm going to talk about is this journal that I found um, that a friend of mine actually led me to. Um, this is a journal that is now um, in on the shelf at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. It's a journal that has, had not yet been studied until I got to look at it. It's called Al-Iqtisadiyat Al-Arabiya or the Arab Economic Journal in the editor's own translation. It begins in 1935 um, and it begins actually as a bi-monthly and then it turns into a weekly. Um, its main editor-in-chief is a very interesting man named Fouad Saba, um, who is the first licensed accountant in British Mandate Palestine. Um, and he is running the journal until 1937, when the British uh, colonial government deport him because he is financing the rebels in the Great Arab Revolt of 1936 to 1939, which is one of the first guerrilla warfare um, that is anti-colonial, right, that the Palestinians sustained for three years. One of the interesting things that happen is that even though Saba and his colleagues, some of them are funding the rebels, the actual rebellion, which is again three years long, does not appear anywhere on the pages of this, um, of this journal. Okay, and this is a really interesting journal because it is essentially existing and reflecting how so many of these people are existing in multiple universes of thought. So they're reading and thinking about people like Marx and Smith, as well as Ibn Khaldun and Ghazali. And they're really trying to shape what is economics as a mode of conduct, as a discipline, as a science of the self. So why is it that these men um, who are writing, who are, who are you know, uh, editing this journal and, and they're doing really interesting things like translating from The Economist, right, and this is in the mid-1930s. Why would it be that nowhere on their pages would they actually feature the Arab Revolt? Um, the way that I explain this is that these men, like so many of, the, of their contemporaries, not just in Palestine but, every, but all over the world, were very invested in this modernist impulse to divide between the political and the economic. And in fact, the way that they defined themselves was ab absolutely distinct from the men, what they called the men of politics. We are, they would say, the men of capital. So who were these guys? And one of the things that happened to me um, while I was doing this research and it happened to me when I was in Palestine and it ha would happen to me when I would be talking to different scholars as well as um, other students like me is I would say here's what I'm doing I'm looking at these Palestinian businessmen I'm thinking about the idea of a Palestinian middle class and people would be very intent on saying to me they did not exist right there was no such thing 
Um, and there was a real insistence on that, um, on that point in so many different contexts. And be what became so interesting for me was to really think more thoroughly about these men like Seba. So Seba, as I said, was the first licensed accountant. He begins a firm, an accounting firm called Seba and Company, which continues until today to be um, a very important multinational corporation. Um, other companies that Palestinians began in Palestine were the Arab Bank, which continues to be one of the most um, important banks in the Arab world, Middle East Airlines, the Lebanese Airlines was actually a Palestinian venture, Arabia Insurance was also, um, began in Palestine, the Arabia Insurance Company also continues to exist until today and is one of the most important um, insurance companies in the region. So these guys were already beginning to start these ventures in the 1930s and 40s in Palestine. As Palestine is falling in 1948, they're rushing to guard their wealth. And what happens in the 1950s and 1960s that's so interesting and important is that these men like Saba, uh, like Shoman, Yusuf Baydas, Habsib al-Sabbagh, all together lead some of the largest and most successful insurance, banking, engineering, finance, and contracting ventures in the Middle East, right? So it's this puzzle that people haven't really engaged. And what I'm really trying to do is tell the story of these people before 1948. And the reason that I'm doing that is in part because I want to complicate this flattened topography of Palestinian social history that we have become so accustomed to and we reify and repeat often without questioning. Um, the other reason that I think these men are important is because they force us to engage how is it that economic categories are important to this Arab liberal project, the Nahda. And what the men on these pages of Iqtisadiyat actually do that's very interesting is they're proselytizing economics as a code of conduct. And the way that they're doing that is distinguishing between need and luxury. They have a very deep class project in which they are attempting to maintain and create new understandings of social hierarchy and really maintain those hierarchies. Um, they are very invested in private property. They are very invested in things like individual freedom, in notions of self-responsibility, in capital accumulation, right? And they see around them a compelling new world of towering buildings, restaurants, cinema houses. So Palestinian men, and the other thing um, I think that's very interesting about these, uh, these projects is that uh, these men, and to a lesser extent women, are really trying to shape this horizon of economic arrival by kind of recasting the territories that are around them. Okay, and this is sort of why I began with the maps, and I'm, and I'm really trying to show this map, which was often on the cover of the journal, right? It's a rendition of, um, uh, uh, of the, the Arab world. And what's interesting about this journal is that they, it's really invested in sort of both textually and visually making these nation states uh, visible as economic units. Okay, so what they would do is they would start with lead articles and then world financial news, and then they'd follow those two categories with national categories, right? Like Syria and Transjordan, um, Iraq and the Arabian Peninsula, uh, North Africa, Egypt and Sudan. And under each of these categories, they would provide commercial legislation, import and export figures, budgets, custom rates. Again, so they're trying to make these units visible calculable and the reason that that's important to these economic thinkers as it is important to so many other economic thinkers at the time is because people are now believing that progress is something that you can calculate and ensure and they're so invested in these ideas of economic growth and the idea of economy as a healthy body as an organic type of natural 
right entity right and these are really important ideas for us to trace the genealogies of if we are being if we are thinking about um, in our present denaturalizing this thing um, called the economy right the other thing that I find so interesting about these um, figures is that national income was not um, a transparent category for them and what's so interesting about them is that they actually talk about the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire as an economic catastrophe um, and they see it as oppressive right because for them they are um, the free trade borders between the Arab world um, which they understand as sharing not just trading interests but culture and language is unnatural so what is very interesting again is the way and you can see some of these borders right the way that they are representing this nation state project and the idea of national economies but positioning it within a broader understanding of a pan-arab capitalist utopia and the reason that this is significant is because we have thought of pan-arabism as primarily associated with a socialist project usually the nasserist project right in the later um, 20 in the mid 20th century but i think attending to economic thought and intellectual economic life allows us to see various different understandings territorial and otherwise of what is this Arab world and how should it be organized. Um, and so the, you know, I just say now a couple of points about why is it um, also interesting in terms of, so not only are these people creating new understandings of territory, they're also creating new understandings of the ideal self, okay? And what is very important is that not everything that was new was beautiful for these elites and they were very in deep ways threatened by the incredible social upheaval that was everywhere surrounding them okay and so um, you would see or i would see as i as i would go through a lot of these articles so for example in this journal you'd find articles such as the relationship between economics and mathematics, the importance of women to economy, um, you know, all of these different kinds of uh, what is a basic need, what is uh, humanity's relationship to economy historically, all of these different kinds of titles in which people, these men are really trying to understand and position and shape a body of economic thought. And across these renditions, you really see their understandings of the ideal man, okay? So the ideal man for them, the anti-hero is someone who spends with abandon, who doesn't know the difference between need and luxury, who deprives his nation of um, his productive capacity. So productive, productivity is very important. The hero were people like Ahmed Helmi Basha, so the founder of the Arab National Bank, or Tahir Karaman, the tobacco industrialist. And these men are judicious. They embrace technology. They encourage enterprise. And above all else, they, um, they turn away from ostentation. So this idea of overspending, right, and caring about appearances is something that these people are really writing against. And there's two similarly contrasting women in this account, um, the Musrifa, who is the spendthrift, and the Hasifa, who is the judicious one. And the spendthrift is a figure that will be familiar to all of us. She spends all her husband's money. She, uh, he works hard all day. And he comes home to find that she has simply gone shopping, right, and wasted um, the fruits of his labor. The important thing about her, though, is that if you can just direct what is understood as her endemic essential tendency to consume to national products, then she can benefit what they call the national economy. The judicious woman, on the other hand, is, uh, is calculated. She's frugal, but she's always fashionable. Um, and she is at her most sublime at the home. And the home is meant to really be um, like the economy, a space that ensures both productivity um, 
and this capacity to calculate and assess, right? And what's also interesting about the home here, and this is one of the ways, you know, I, I work on um, what part of the book is, involves the a domesticity and engagement with a domesticity project. And as I was doing this work, I was um, so, you know, taken by the resonances of these accounts, especially of a woman named Salwa Saeed on a uh, radio program called The New Arab Home, in which she was basically saying, a woman's duty is to keep her men at home. They are now, yes, the woman might have an endemic uh, tendency to consume, but men also have an endemic tendency and a weakness in the face of temptation. And now there are all these, un, you know, there's all these unspecified houses of entertainment that she's so scared of. And the women of the, of the, the refined women, right, of this class really have to guard their men's fidelity. And how do they do it? They do it by keeping an orderly, clean, calculated, budgetary home, right? So it is women's responsibility to guard her man's fidelity, right? And I don't know, um, for me, this was, this was very resonant because I would often hear people saying, oh, so-and-so's, you know, uh, husband stepped out on her because her house is so dirty, right? So these ideas have sort of longer legacies, right? And, and importance and significance. So for these men um, and women, the ideal economic subject is something that they called social man, right? Who really understands capital and saving and spending it as, cr as critical to what they talked about as bonds of mutuality, right? But what is important about this social man um, is, and, and his partner, the scientific uh, domestic home uh, maker, is that they, they were so haunted by their many others, right? The maid, the worker, the peasant. These people could never be the reader or the listener, right? In fact, their very presence and the idea of them was very threatening. So, for example, Salwa Saeed in her radio program, The New Arab Home, would, be, would tell her listeners to be very careful. Your maid might be listening. Be careful she doesn't inculcate a new notion of self, right? You have to, you have to figure out these kinds of balances. So, in many ways, the, the specter of social change was as threatening to these elites as was the broader project of settler colonialism, which was one of the reasons that by the 1940s, when it is very clear to them that the kind of pan-Arab capitalist utopia that they, are, um, that they are envisioning and hoping for is quick, so quickly eroding, when it's at that moment that they begin to think of the Palestinian subaltern as an audience, it's already too little too late, right? Um, so basically, one of the things that I think is really important and interesting to contextualize these elite men and women <coughs> is that like many um, contemporaries of their time and also like many scholars, they are living in a world where they have access to all sorts of new commodities. And this proliferation of commodities <coughs> is for them a transitionary moment in their understanding of capitalism. And this is actually uh, the case for across the board, right? This world in which you have um, a tremendous growth, okay? And all of the scholarship or much of the scholarship that has thought about how is it that people are calculating economy have linked it to the significance of calculating this type of growth, right? But in my work, and particularly um, looking at British colonial rule in Palestine, I think that scarcity is just as important to thinking about the calculation of economy as is growth. So it's not just, you know, in the 1930s, these people are really thinking of their world as one of plenty. They have, 
now all sorts of new commodities that they have access to and those commodities and forms of consumption are both sites of promise and of danger, social danger, right, um, um, marital danger, but they are also then by the 1940s facing a huge crisis of supply and that's the story that I'm now um, going to go to. Oh, this is Fuad Saba in his cute little office. And this is the picture of a um, Palestinian home. And actually, I used this um, photograph in my book, and I later learned that it was the home of a colleague of mine who was shocked to see it in its pages. Um, this is an image of Palestinian um, soldiers in the British wartime effort and allied wartime effort. So let me just say a few things about um, British wartime regulations um, and then I can conclude with um, some of the significance of this work. So what's happening is in 1941, um, British colonial officials established something called the Middle East Supply Center. Um, and this begins as a, a, a British venture and it becomes an Anglo-American venture. And its main target is basically to free up the allied need for supplies and trade. Okay? So they are basically really trying to make sure that military needs are taken care of, right? Um, at the same time that they are also very concerned about um, political upheaval the prospect of famine, because of course what happens during wartime and crisis of supply is famine, right? And, and, and um, all sorts of linkages between famine and political unrest. So the, the Middle East Supply Center leaves behind it a great deal of legacies. And you know this is important because basically the British are taking their understandings of Keynesianism at the time, that is the relationship between the state and private capital, and they're bringing it to their administration of World War II economy in the Middle East. Okay? And this has broad reaching legacies um, for the relationship between state and capital for um, m many years. And it has very, for me, the specific um, legacies that I'm going to talk about are a bit different. First, I, I want to point out to you that what they actually, one of the first things that they do is change their territorial um, understanding of what is the Middle East. Up until then, they had been using Alfred Thayer Mann's um, 1902 rendition of the Middle East in which he is understanding the Middle East as everything from the Arabian Peninsula to, to today's Pakistan. He distinguishes that from the Near East, which includes Anatolia and the Eastern Mediterranean. And the British are basically using this territorial understanding until World War II. And that is the moment where they decide we have to refashion what we can think of as the Middle East because we have to manage one economic unit. So they shift the territory. Now it includes 27 different territories, 100 million people. It stretches from Malta to Sudan. And in very quickly, right, they are essentially, because again, they are facing both the crisis of supply and a series of already what's called bread riots, which I think is a misnomer, I think we should call them uprisings, right? They're already happening in Tehran, in Damascus, in Beirut. There's a little bit of famine in Yemen. The British are freaking out, okay? So one of the things they decide to do is refashion what they understand as the Middle East, as one um, economic unit. So they're really territorial legacies of these attempts to make economy something you can manage, right? Um, and they are attempting also to do this by having conferences at their base in Cairo. They're bringing together different financial and state actors throughout these 27 territories. And they're really producing things like statistical tables of trade returns, cost of living indices, bank deposits. And one of the kinds of hagiographic accounts of the Middle East Supply Center credit it with being a forerunner to the Arab League 
why you would be proud of that would be a good question. But other than that, right, like they are suggesting that you are, that the Middle East Supply Center is providing economic numbers and statistics where there were none before. But we know just from the simple engagement with this journal that I was talking to you about, Iqtisadiyat, that those efforts were already underway and looked quite different from the Middle East that British colonial officials were imagining. The other thing that British officials in middle, the Middle East Supply Center are attempting to do is really assure um, what they called freedom from want. Okay, and they are doing this in very interesting ways. Um, and in Palestine, what they basically begin, they you know they do um, a, a number of different experiments throughout the Middle East. In Palestine, they do. Between 1939 and 1947, they introduced more than 10 regulations, various rationing regimes, all in which they are attempting to determine people's bodies, people's what they should consume and how they should consume it, right? And basically, um, one of the things that was very interesting to me as I was going through my archi archives was the way that both European Jewish um, figures as well as Palestinians would complain about the army of bureaucrats that the British um, actually had uh, instituted everywhere in Palestine, right? So they create this um, division called the Provision of Essential Needs. It has over 800 um, workers, right? So it's a really big venture. And what they're doing in this venture is making very fraught linkages between um, three basic ideas, basic needs, political containment, and development, okay? And these are really important kind of um, linkages that we have to understand in, in order to understand how colonial development becomes the development project that we see today. So to understand it, I want to talk a bit about an index that is very dear to my own heart, which is the calorie. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, so the calorie is um, invented in 1896 by a scientist named Wilbur Atwater um, in the basement of um, Wesleyan University. And Atwater is among a group of... Um, new scientists, they're calling themselves nutritionists, they're inventing new categories like fats, proteins, carbohydrates, okay? And what they are doing through these new uh, categories is making food a politically legible object, okay? So this is linked to the ways in which I was talking about how is it that new territories become economically legible. So food and its regulation and basic needs and how much food do you need to be a good soldier, to be a good worker, these are political projects, okay? And so this is beginning to happen. Now what is interesting is the way that some of these nutritionists are basically not getting any kind of legitimacy from anyone. Why would that happen? Because states and governments are very frightened to make the link between poverty and malnutrition. They would rather understand the hunger, the hungry as culpable for their own hunger, the poor to be blamed for their own poverty, right? So the debate was one between understanding poverty and malnutrition as caused by structural conditions versus the moral weaknesses of the poor, okay? So this is an ongoing debate that has very big consequences for governments, right? So the nutritionists are scientists without any funding. And in the 1890s, they're desperately looking for somebody to fund what they do. And who do they find um, as their uh, bank rollers, economic elites, who in the 1890s in the United States are facing a massive labor uprising and upheaval and labor organizing in the United States. I know it's very hard for us to imagine today, but it was the case in the 1880s and 90s in the United States. And this is how the index that we understand as a transparent and self-evident index 
that is the cost of living, which somehow begins to appear as if God created it on the eighth day, and oh yes, the cost of living, right? But these indices have histories. What is the history of the cost of living index? Basically, the history of it is that these nutritionists and economic elites get together and they decide how much food do people need, how much money do people need to buy, how much food do they need, so that we can keep them on the factory floor and off the streets. That's how the cost of living comes into being as a category, as an index, okay? Um, and so it's, it's interesting because it's in this time that you see the, colo the colonies become a laboratory for these nutritionists. And one of the really interesting things about how colonial knowledge production works is that it's actually colonial medical officials often have much more of an indictment of colonialism when they're really trying to explore structural conditions of poverty. So this very interesting sort of story of what these anthropologists and other medical officials find when they do these nutritional surveys, right? They actually pull together these kinds of real deep indictments of what colonialism has done for people's everyday lives. Um, but the argument continues to be a really um, divisive, divisive one. And basically, um, you, you're continuing, I think it's as late as 1936, that in the House of Commons in London, in case you needed to feel a little bit better about the triumph of stupidity in the United States in this very moment, they hold an 11-hour debate on whether or not there's a link between poverty and malnutrition in 1936, right? An 11-hour debate, right? And this is because they're worried about how is, how is all of these findings going to affect um, the dole, wages, all of these basic things that the government has to provide for. Even though already in 1917, people like Herbert Hoover who is the head of the National Food Authority at the time, John Maynard Keynes, they're doing interesting things by linking basic needs to national security, right? And so what actually makes these findings that link nutrition and malnutrition to poverty, what makes it a political agenda is World War II. That is the moment where people realize, governments realize, if we don't feed our soldiers, we're going to lose the war, right? So this is their, this is the transitionary moment where everything changes. So what's really interesting to me is also the way that the calorie is part of the story. So the League of Nations in war, in wartime, um, in World War II, starts standardizing how many calories do people need um, to do the basic daily work, right? Um, so they're trying to set up minimums. What's so fascinating about how they set it up is that they scale it down for the Easterner, who is quote unquote vegetarian in mind, who has a different dietary mentality, right? So from the very beginning, you see the ways in which these universal standards that look so innocent and self-evident actually constitute, are constituted by very exclusionary and racialized understandings of basic needs as well as poverty. So the British are going into World War II. They're armed with all of these differentiated indices. They want to ensure freedom from, from want. They want to, they want to um, win the war, right? Of course, it's going to be a very huge transition for the British because they go into the war as the largest creditor nation in the world and they come out the largest debtor nation in the world, right? Um, and they're really kind of obsessed with this idea of fair share for all. Their biggest horrific example of colonial mismanagement is in Bengal in 1943, when an estimated 3 million people die in a famine that could have been completely avoided, right? Um, but they fare differently in Palestine. And, and here I'm just going to, I'm not going to get into all of the details of the various rationing regimes that they try to institute, safe to say that if you read um, my book, you'll find uh, basically three different stages of rationing, 
all of which fail completely because they cannot actually um, account for a very diverse population in Palestine, a diverse and dynamic population um, in Palestine. And one of the things that happens in this period is in their attempts to impose a nutritional economy, you see the ways in which, for example, they talk about in one survey that I studied, three racial expenditure groups, right? Arabs, European Jews, and Oriental Jews, right? Um, and they're trying to really figure out how do we make a fair share for all in these kinds of diversities. So let me tell you about what, for me, looking at these regimes and their failures actually revealed about Palestine in this period. First, um, British rule faced tremendous difficulty in measuring goods. So the measurements in the, of the time in Palestine and regionally were the wuqiya, the ratl, and the kale. And these measurements actually differed both across regional borders and within national borders. So the Palestinian southern measurement is more like the Egyptian, whereas the Palestinian northern measurement is more like the Lebanese. So when the British try to introduce the metric system, it's one of their most controversial um, efforts. The other thing that becomes very hard is counting people. So they begin to say, okay, we want to provide um, food for all. We have to count these Palestinians. They realize they don't have any numbers of Palestinians. The European Jewish institutions have full numbers and population numbers. They don't have, the, the British are really facing two decades of apathetic rule, right? And they understand that they have not, they don't have basic um, numbers. The other kind of, um, the other kind of um, challenge that they face is how difficult it is to categorize people, okay? So, one of the things that this survey does initially is try to um, categorize people as um, uh, Palestinian Muslim versus Palestinian Christian, okay? And then they get all upset because they realize there's no dietary differences between the Muslims and the Christians, so they have to abandon this categorization, right? And so what this actually makes clear is the way that these that Palestinian Muslims, Christians, and Jews actually make these racial expenditure groups and ideas completely void. The other thing that I think is um, very interesting and politically important to me is the way that these, um, the way that looking at food and poverty and the debates on it challenge the binaries that I am so comfortable with because I began to see how is it that the very poor in London were talked about in the same way that the Oriental was in Jerusalem. And how it was that the housewife in London was the uh, source of all blame, just like the housewife in Palestine. And to read some of these British surveys, you would think that every single budgetary, health, and any other kind of problem in Palestine was a result of bad cooking, um, bad housekeeping, right, or generally bad motherhood, right, whether it was Arab or Jewish. Um, and so in many ways it was really the domestic manager, and I think this is the case in a lot of wartime um, periods, right, the how is it that the domestic manager is often in Palestine just as she was in Britain, um, and as James Vernon has put it in his um, wonderful book, Hunger, the last to eat and the first to garner responsibility for managing hunger. Um, so the scarcity of World War II and the very sort of deep ways in which the British are reforming and attempting to really regulate Palestinian economy has very um, deep consequences for the Palestinian men of capital that I began with. Um, their territorial visions begin to attenuate. They start for, for the first time to think about the authentic Palestinian consumer as the Bedouin or the nomad, right? Um, their ideas of a pan-Arab uh, utopia really begin to erode to understandings of a smaller Arab economy versus a Jewish economy within Palestine, right? Um, and I can talk about more of those changes um, in our discussion, but let me just conclude.
Yes, with some points. Um, no, not yet. Um, so let me just conclude with some points. So first, what I think is really important um, is to, for me to start out by saying the point that I sort of ended with, which is that the resonance between um, the poor in London and the Oriental slash native in Palestine, or the resonance between this, the domestic manager, whether she's Jewish um, or Arab, really uh, that resonance is not coincidental, it's structural, it's formative, it's part of the way that power and rule work, and I think it's very politically important to see that. Second, one of the things that I think is very compelling to me in this story is that it allows us to um, really challenge the idea of a colonial panopticon that's very coherent and so tempting to buy into it, but the way actually that these things work on the ground is not so simple. And many scholars have talked about how bureaucrats in the early 20th century had all these dreams of omniscience um, and that they understand that counting bodies and calculating economy were ways to sort of make surveillance happen everywhere. But in, in Palestine, the British really don't do any of this because they're fantasizing about surveillance or power. They do it because they have no other choice because they are facing the potential of political unrest and scarcity. They begin counting people because they have to. And as they do that, they're facing these decades of their apathetic rule. Um, the other thing, obviously, that I've said um, throughout is that looking at these nutri what you know what the British are calling their nutritional economies also shows how European Jewish infrastructure and cap capital and expertise far outstrip that of the British colonial government itself. Again, that's the comparison that needs to be made. Um, thirdly, the thing that I think is very important to me is the point that I made about development that development has a history, that history is violent, that history is exclusionary. You know, there are people um, like Nick Cullither in this wonderful new book called um, A Hungry World, who is sort of positioning the shift from the colonized to the developmentalized subject as a really important way to think about that transition. And I think it's very important for us to think uh, critically about the equation that is essential to development. I think if we think about it critically, we are able to see the continuity between colonial and national rule. That continuity in terms of development is one that tries to affect a minimum amount of social amelioration so as to realize political containment. That's the equation, right? And the nationalists have used it just as much as the colonialists did just in that equation. Um, I think also that, you know, as I've said sort of over and over, that the elite men and women of the 30s and 40s, they help us to complicate how we understand Palestinian elite thought and practice. And here it's very important for me to, as I began, to sort of step out of the um, epistemological trap that we're often in when we study the colonized subject where we can only see them as a shadow of their superior British or superior Zionist other. For me, it's very important to understand that these elites did not live in a world in which they are shadows. They lived in a world in which they were part of something broader um, and, and they understood themselves as core to that broader Arab world, right? And they had a liberal understanding of economy and, pro and progress. And, and my, my aim in providing that inventory is then to make the move that it is high time that we critique that liberal age. It may look pretty and we may feel sad that it doesn't look exactly like that anymore, but it is very alive and well. And the argument for me is that the poor were in the 1930s um, just as they are today, not uh, subjects of history, but objects of it, as supplemental to history, as something that has to be reformed, right? That has to be civilized, right? And that these exclusions are not anomalous to Arab liberalism. They actually are 
constituting the very project of Arab liberalism. And here I'll go um, to just my last image to sort of end with where I am now um, in my own thinking and why and how it was that this moment, which is the moment of August uh, 14, 2013, when Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the present, um, uh, president of Egypt, who had taken over in a coup in Egypt, um, is the field marshal of the most brutal uh, modern-day mass massacre in Egyptian history of Muslim Brotherhood followers at Rabah Square. And for me, this was a very formative moment because this was a moment where um, I saw many of my self-defined liberal friends, mentors, and students essentially justify, dismiss, or deny this massacre. And for me, the way in which those deep exclusions that were actually not somehow coincidental or exceptional to liberalism, but part of its core, really spoke to mm -hmm. the way you become co-evil with killers, essentially. And how, what, you know, what does it mean? What are the limits of this liberal project that can enable the very categorization of someone as outside the human? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.